You're listening to a sermon from our pastor, Brian Payne. We would love to have you worship God with us this Sunday at 1045 in the morning and at six o'clock in the evening as we make, nurture, and equip disciples of Jesus Christ in Auburn and throughout the world. Well, as we continue to behold our God, if you would turn in your Bible to John chapter 12, we'll be in verses 27 to 33 this morning. Thank you, Adam, uh, orchestra, choir, Heather, and all who have served us so faithfully this morning and leading us through song. And we're very grateful for you and your excellence and your stewardship week in and week out. Before we get into our time, a preaching time, uh, it's a special season, especially for our high school graduating seniors and their families. It's a very uh, sentimental, reflective time. I know that experientially now. Uh, as I have one, and I remember taking him to pre-K, and that was like yesterday, and now he's graduating, and I know all of you parents and grandparents are feeling that as well. Um, So just to, this is a biblical thing, we're to honor one another. Um, I want to honor the seniors by having you stand and remain standing. Don't just stand up and sit down. So uh, if you're a graduating senior, if you would stand for a moment so we can acknowledge you. And I know y'all don't like this, but we're going to stare at you right now and honor you. (laughs) Now, if you are a parent of one of these graduating seniors, if you would stand along with them and remain standing. All right. Amen. Amen. Thank you, parents. Uh, You have invested in your children. Uh, You have loved them well. You have, um, by the work of the Spirit in and through you, uh, the DNA of churchmanship has been formed in them, which will serve them the rest of their lives. You have brought the Word of God to them in the home, and you have made sure that they are here uh, veiling themselves to the ordinary, but in a very real sense, extraordinary means of grace. And you will see that fruit uh, for the rest of your life in them. Now, if you are a grandparent of one of these youth, uh, these seniors, graduating seniors, would you stand as well? All right. Yeah. 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 And we're grateful for you. And you see the impact of multi-generational gospel uh, service and witness. We talked about the family last week, and I made the point, just the point the psalmist is making, that God's strategy for the world is Christian families. And we are grateful for you. Uh, We really are. You are You are the archers who are shooting off these sharp arrows into a world opposed, and that is God's means of overcoming evil through the gospel. Uh, we're going to send our children to a generation we, we will not see ourselves. And that is God's strategy. So thank you, grandparents, great-grandparents, if you may be here as well. Here's what we want to do. 
if you're around them, uh, whether it be uh, the students or even the, the, the parents or grandparents, if you would lay hands on them, and I want to lead us through a prayer uh, for, for uh, these families and for these seniors who, who now we know are going to go out into the world and uh, we're going to see your investment over the next generation. Uh, and, and we're going to see what the gospel does through Christian families, and we're so grateful. So let's uh, bow our heads, and let's pray for these families and for those uh, who, in particular, are graduating and we are sending out. Father of mercy, thank you. Thank you for the Christian family. The family is the first institution in the Bible. It's a holy institution. And I want to thank you for, uh, first of all, for these grandparents uh, who invested into the parents of these, these seniors. And I thank you, Lord, for their commitment to Christ, for your grace on them. And we thank you, Lord, for the parents who have invested in these children, these young people, even as they were invested in by their parents. And Lord, I want to thank you for these graduating seniors who are now adults and we're sending them out. We're shooting them as arrows into this world that is opposed uh, to the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, as they make this transition, we pray as a body right now that you would fill them with the knowledge of your will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that they would have walks worthy of the calling, fully pleasing you in every good work, strengthened with all might according to your glorious power by the Holy Spirit. Father, I pray that the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened in order to know the hope to which you have called them, the riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints and your incomparably great power for them who believe. Father, I pray that they be able to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love which surpasses all measure. Father, I pray you would fill them with the knowledge uh, of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that you would set them apart for holy and glorious purposes. We, we know that a, a man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. And we pray that they, as they acknowledge you in all things, that you would direct their steps all their days. And I do pray that you would continue to give wisdom to their parents and to their grandparents as they continue to invest in them in this new season of life. We're grateful, Lord, for their investment in these young people, in these young adults. And now, Lord, may your name be hallowed in each and every senior as they go about uh, the next phase of their life. Father, I pray you protect them. I pray you grant them long days. And I pray you set them apart as vessels of honor. We ask these things in the matchless name of our Savior, King Jesus. Amen. Thank you very much. We love you guys. Grateful for you. Amen. Amen. So we're in John chapter 12, verses 27 to 33. In C.S. Lewis's novel, many of you have read this, we have The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy tumble from a wardrobe into a land called Narnia. 
It was a land, though, that was under a spell from a witch. And in this land, as a result of that spell, it was always winter and never Christmas. Now, of the four, these four children who are brothers and sisters, Edmund is sulky and he is quarrelsome. And this makes him susceptible to the witch who kind of rules that land, if you will. And so he is captivated by her as a result of his unrepentant, quarrelsome nature. And ultimately she captivates him and holds him captive. And, and when the other three, along with the beavers, meet the hero, Aslan the lion, he asked them a question, a question he already knew the answer, but he wanted them to contemplate it. He said, where is the fourth? Where is the fourth? Mr. Beaver responded that Edmund had betrayed them. And then Peter interjected and said, that was partly my fault. I was angry with him, and I think that helped him to go wrong. We're told that Aslan said nothing at that point. Uh, he didn't excuse what Peter said, nor did he blame him. And yet, when Lucy, even after all Edmund had done to her, and he had done a lot of bad things to, to Lucy, Lucy responded by asking Aslan a question. She says, please, Aslan, can anything be done to save Edmund. And Aslan responded, all shall be done, but it may be harder than you think. And what is that? Aslan would have to forfeit his life to save and secure Edmund's release. And that was indeed harder than Lucy could have ever imagined. The witch will execute Aslan on a marble or a stone table. Aslan will lay down his life. He will sacrifice himself for Edmund, a son of Adam, who the witch craftily deceived into enslavement and would have planned to devour we see more clearly today in our passage the price that would have to be paid in order uh, to secure us in our own freedom by the one that Aslan represents. And John, the writer, wants us to see that our salvation is harder than we think much harder than we could ever imagine. Why? Why does he want us to see that? Because the more we understand of the substitutionary sacrifice to secure our salvation, the more we will love Jesus. In fact, that's behind all heart change. Hearts are changed when those who love us enough to sacrifice himself for us, communicate that to us, 
And that's how our hearts are progressively transformed. And John wants to see uh, the price that would have to be paid to secure our salvation. But before we even get to that infinite price, that unimaginable price, we see the greatest of all motivations behind paying that price. That brings us to the first part of this passage. The glory of God displayed in Jesus' motivation for the cross. What is behind Jesus' motivation for the cross? Look with me in verse 27. He says, now is my heart troubled. Now, what, what precipitated that? This is just a few days out from the cross. We don't know exactly what day in the week it is, but we know that Sunday he entered Jerusalem, and on Friday he's going to be crucified. And so John hasn't given us the exact day that this conversation is taking place, but it's just days out from the cross. But what precipitates Jesus' reflection on, this, on his troubled heart? Well, in verse 24, the, the Greeks have come to him and they want to see Jesus. And he makes the statement that unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies... It bears much fruit. That's referring to his death. And, and, and then he calls them. He says, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. So what will secure that kind of life where a person would lay down their life for the sake of Jesus and eternal life? It will require Jesus' death. That's why his heart is troubled. Now, Jesus had already suffered uh, many things. He had suffered many indignities um, at the hands of, of sinful people who, who wanted him dead. In fact, uh, he had been accused of insanity. He had been accused of illegitimacy, being illegitimate. And he'd been accused of blasphemy. So he'd already suffered greatly at the hands of people. But it's what awaits him in just a few days that has his heart troubled. In fact, that word troubled is probably not strong enough language. Uh, New Testament scholars, Greek scholars tell us that that word trouble could literally be translated uh, horrified, revulsed. So you could translate this, my soul is horrified by what lies ahead. But it's not merely death that troubles Jesus. Uh, we, we have church history to tell us that there have been many martyrs who died for the sake of the kingdom, who died with, with great peace and without trouble. And so it's not merely death that has Jesus troubled. It has to do with the doctrine of imputation. Now, what does that word mean? Well, it's a word that means, literally, uh, to credit something to someone else. Jesus is going to have our sins imputed to him. That, that's what has his, troll, uh, his, his soul troubled. This is the perfect, spotless Lamb of God. And, and our sin is going to be imputed to him, credited to him. So that when he stands before God on the cross, it will be as if he had lived our life, our life of, of wickedness and iniquity and rebellion and transgression. 
God will look at Jesus as if he had lived our lives. Paul picks this up in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, where he says, he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. You see, there's really three imputations in the Bible. Adam's sin is imputed to all humanity. On the cross, the believer's sin is imputed to Jesus. And in his resurrection, his righteousness is imputed to us. All of those imputations are necessary to understand salvation. He who knew no sin became sin for us. Or Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming accursed for us. The spotless Lamb of God, the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, is going to become accursed of God. That's what has his soul troubled. But that said, this question that he asked, when he says, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose, I came. I have come to this hour. This is a rhetorical question. It's a rhetorical question to drive home the gravity of this situation. So if your heart your wayward heart and your fallen reason ever lies to you and says, this particular sin, whatever it may be, is no big deal. Who's it going to harm? You need to preach to yourself, that is a lie. Look to the trouble in Jesus' soul, even before he goes to the cross, to see the implications of your sin. In fact, the cross is going to be the grand display of what every sin you've ever committed deserves. Just look to the cross. And it's for this purpose Jesus came. He came to die. Now, that's what sets Christianity apart from every other religion in the world. In every other religion in the world, the founder of that religion comes to live. The founder of every other religion in the world comes to live as the grand example of how to climb the ladder to God. Christianity is different. The founder of Christianity came to die because we could never climb the ladder to a God who is infinite in his holiness and his righteousness. God must come to us. And to save us in coming to us, Jesus, the Son of God, must die. But what was his ultimate motivation? Because we can learn something here. As much as he loves you, his love for us was not the greatest motivation. The greatest motivation we see in verse 28. Father, glorify your name. That is the greatest motivation. It's the only motivation that is not sinful, in fact. Glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. D.A. Carson says, the one who does not stoop to his own will, 
but who performs the will of the one who sent him, even to the death of the cross, is the one who glorifies God. And it can only be said of one, right? Because we have all sinned and we continue to sin and fall short of this motivation. We, we continue to fall short of the glory of God. And so we need to learn from Christ here. He's not just our Savior. He is that. He's also our grand example. So how do you die to your lusts? How do you die to your tendency towards criticism and slander and gossip? How do you die to these things? Your bitterness. You refuse to stoop to your own will. Learn from Jesus. Even though his will was not sinful, he submitted his will to the Father. So he had a holy will, but even then he submitted to the Father. You submit your will to God for his glory. That's what you do. That's how you overcome these things. As you are stirred in your heart by the, the grand sacrifice that Jesus made for your sins. Now notice, when Jesus says that, the voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, I will glorify it again. This is one of only three times that we see the Father's voice heard in Jesus's ministry. The first time is in Luke chapter three, for instance, when he's baptized. And then we see it again in Luke chapter nine, when he is on the Mount of, of Transfiguration uh, with Moses and Elijah. In both of those cases, the voice came in reference to the cross. So, for instance, when Jesus was baptized, a lot of people ask me, why was Jesus baptized if he wasn't a sinner? Well, he was baptized as our substitute. Uh, he was identifying with sinful man. He was coming to save sinners. And so as he is immersed in the waters of the Jordan, that pointed to, that preached a sermon of the kind of death he would die. He would be immersed under the judgment of God's wrath. And then he wouldn't stay under the water. He wouldn't stay under the wrath. He would be raised for our justification. And so his baptism reflected the cross and the resurrection that would come. And then at the Mount of Transfiguration, when the Father's voice was heard again, Jesus was speaking to Moses and Elijah. And Luke tells us in Luke 9.31 that he was speaking, I love this, of his departure. The Greek word there is exodon. He was speaking of his exodus. Jesus recognized that his departure, that is his death, and his suing uh, resurrection was the grand exodus that the exodus in exodus points to. But it would require his death. He would go into exile in death. And he would be restored into his inheritance through resurrection. And just like the first exodus required the death of the Passover lamb, this Passover lamb would die and bring about this greater exodus. And so this is the third time we see the father's voice. And again, this is referring to his death, or as Jesus calls it, his hour. But even though Jesus' mission is one of a kind... His mission is different than ours, obviously. 
We see here the only motivation that will stand in the day of judgment. You see, if you do something good for someone, but you're not doing it fully for the glory of God, the scripture calls that sin. Jesus is doing this for the glory of God. To sin is to fall short of the glory of God. Because we were created for God's glory, but because we're sinners, Paul says that we tend to worship the creation rather than the creator. And here's how this works. The created order is one big sign glory pointing us to the glory of God. Everything created is intended as a sign to point us to God. Now, we went to Gatlinburg as a staff a few weeks ago. And as we got closer, there were signs, right, pointing us to, to Gatlinburg. It would have been foolish for us to camp out right there at the sign and pull out our suitcases and all of the, the kitchen and food, kitchen stuff and food and, and just camp out at the sign. We had enough sense to know that the signs were not the ultimate destination. The signs point us to the destination. And everything in the created order points us to the, the true glory that is found in the great I am. But here's what we do. We tend to fixate on the sign glories and we make that our God. And it, and it has a devastating effect on our motivations and our ambitions in life. When I was a young boy, my uncle played, started for the University of Alabama, middle linebacker. And I would go to these games and I would see the sign glory. All right. I would see the glory these guys received. And, and instead of having that sign glory point us, point me to the, to the one who truly is infinite in glory. I fixated on the sign glory and it changed my motivations in life. That's all I wanted to be was a college football player. And, and it became an idol in my life. And it, and it really was behind all of my ambitions in life. Uh, when I went to, to see Rocky III at the theater, I remember this distinctly. I saw the glory uh, uh, that, that comes with being not only an actor, but the world heavyweight champion of the world, right? And I walked out of that theater convinced God had called me to be the next heavyweight champion of the world. <laughs> and then I went to New York City in my... Aunt Pat took me to my first uh, Broadway play, Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, and I saw the glory uh, of, of that great performance. Instead of seeing it as a sign glory pointing me to the one who gave them these abilities, I fixated on it and became an idol, and I walked out of there convinced God had called me to be a Broadway star. <laughs> Though I can't sing, I can't dance, and I can't act. All right? But when we are regenerated by the, by the power of the Holy Spirit, and he begins to progressively grow us in grace and sanctify us, and we increasingly see and behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, it changes our ambitions. It changes our motivations. It changes our aspirations. And Jesus is our model here. 
He is fixated on the glory of God. Now, in one sense, as the eternal son of God, he's the exact radiance of God's glory. We learned that from Hebrews 1. But as our substitute, as the second Adam, the last Adam, here is one as our example who perfectly beheld the glory of God. And it was everything to him. It was so much to him that he was willing to endure the imputation of our sin. He was willing to endure the cross. And as our spiritual eyes are increasingly enlightened to God's glory in Jesus, our capacity to endure heartache and struggle for the sake of the kingdom will grow as well. Well, notice in verse 29, the crowd that stood there and heard it, that is the voice, said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Now, given that the voice was for them, not Jesus, he makes that clear, doesn't he? This voice has come for your sake, not mine. And given the fact that they thought it was noise, just pure noise, like a thunder, or some of the more spiritual ones thought it was the voice of an angel, uh, it appears that this is a, a real life picture of what God's revelation is to the unbelieving ear. They're not believers here, and they cannot discern this revelation from God as what it is. So here's the question. How do you respond to his word? It's an important question. And one way to answer that is when you hear it read or when you read it yourself, when you hear it taught, when you hear it sung, when you hear it prayed, when you hear it preached, does it sound like the words of life to you? It's a very important question. Or is it like these particular people, incomprehensible noise to you. If that's what it is, please don't stay satisfied with that. Cry out to God, give me ears to hear. Give me spiritual eyes to behold. Because these people are in a bad place. That brings us to the second point of this passage. We've seen the glory of God displayed in Jesus' motivation for the cross in the second point, we see the glory of God displayed in Jesus' triumph over evil through the cross. Again, verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now would the ruler of this world be cast out. Now world here, who does that refer to? The people who have rejected Jesus, the leaders uh, who have condemned him, uh, Judas, who is in the process of betraying him, the soldiers who are going to mock him, and, and people like Pilate, who, who will sentence him. In other words, they are representative of a world alienated from God. They represent every unbeliever here. Um, they represent those who will not publicly identify with Jesus, who won't embrace him, and as a result, have the devil... Now, this is hard to say, but this is what Jesus is saying here. 
They have the devil as their ruler. Now, how is the cross a judgment on the world? Well, first of all, their response to Jesus is a test case of how every unbeliever in the world would respond to Jesus if they were in their shoes. And how did they respond to Jesus? They wanted him dead. They wanted nothing to do with him. They wanted him put to death. And so they are a test case of how every unbeliever, and if you're an unbeliever here today, let me just say this is exactly how you would respond if you were in the shoes, their shoes. But the second reason this is a, a judgment on the world is in this sense. The judgment that Jesus himself receives on the cross is the judgment you will receive in the day of judgment if you do not receive his provision for your sin. That's how this is a judgment on the world. This is the first of three references, though, we see of the ruler of this world. We'll see uh, this language used in John chapter 14 and John chapter 16. Now, why is he described as the ruler of this world? Well, because since our fall into sin, we have been under his power. That is those who have not trusted in the son. John will write in 1 John 5, in fact, 1 John 5, 19, the world lies in the power of the evil one. If you're not a believer today, it's because you're under the power of the evil one. Just like Edmund in the land of Arnia, Narnia, under the captivity of the witch. You're under the power of the evil one. And that's why the first gospel promise in the Bible is that God would crush the head of the serpent. Genesis 3.15. I'm reading a book right now by Andy Nacelli. And I love the title, and it's a great book, The Serpent and the Serpent Slayer. And he argues that a, a pithy way to summarize the Bible's storyline is this. Kill the dragon get the girl. I love that. We're depicted as the bride of Christ, right? That's where he gets that. So he points out that the Bible storyline features three main characters. First of all, you have the serpent. He's the villain of the story. We know him as Satan or the devil. He's the ruler of this world. The second character in this storyline is the damsel in distress. It's the people of God who will be Christ's bride. And then the third character is the serpent slayer. It's the hero of the story, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And incidentally, if you've read any kind of literature, that's why one of the most common plots in literature is overcoming the monster. And whatever that monster might be, uh, those kind of stories echo the story of stories. So think about some of the great works of literature. George and the dragon, St. George and the dragon, Beowulf, Harry Potter, Chronicles of Narnia, The Hobbit, Lord of the Rings, all of these these 
works of literature have this idea of overcoming some kind of monster. But here's the question. How is this serpent overcome? And I'm going to have to shorten my, shorten my message here. We're going to cut it here because we have the Lord's Supper. But I will, we'll stop it here. How is this serpent overcome? This is a very important principle. Paul gives it to us in Colossians 2. And then we're going to partake of the table. Here's what he says. God forgave us all our trespasses. That's part of it right there. Forgiveness. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Do you see that? You have a debt. It's a sin debt. Because of your sin, you must pay the penalty. Just like in America, if you break laws in a just court, we have less just courts today than we used to, the, the one who commits the crime has to pay the penalty. If a judge just says, I'm going to sweep it under the mat today because I've got a tea time. That's not a good judge. And so we have a penalty, okay? And, and so he has forgiven us. He has canceled the record of debt. But he didn't do it by just sweeping it under the mat, all right? Get this. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross, Jesus paid the debt. Jesus went to the cross and our sins, our debt was imputed to him. Okay. And get this. He disarmed the rulers in so doing. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. That is in Christ. So how does this work? Satan's main weapon that he uses against us is his power to accuse us before God because of our guilt and therefore demand our righteous condemnation. But as the sinless substitute, the Lord Jesus Christ takes the debt. He takes the penalty and he, in so doing, disarms the devil. And he is forever disarmed for everyone who believes in the Son. And so God is satisfied. He's propitiated. His wrath is satisfied. Jesus is the one who satisfies. He's the propitiator. We are forgiven and Satan is crushed because Jesus took our legal debt to the cross. Let me give you one practical example. And then we go to the supper. Martin Luther once envisioned that he, he was awakened from his sleep and the devil was at the end of his bed. Okay, so this is a, something he's envisioned, but he, he experienced this all the time. And what Satan was doing was reading a long list of Luther's sins. He was holding these sins against Luther. And so as he reads these sins, and as he finishes, here's what Luther says to Satan. I don't recommend you speaking to Satan, but here's what he said to Satan. Yes, old fellow, I know all about it. I know some sins you've overlooked. 
Here are a few extra. (laughs) And then he gave the devil those extra sins. But so confident was Luther that Jesus had paid for every sin that he no longer had a fear of Satan. The accusations no longer made him fear. They no longer terrified him. In fact, he could admit other sins that Satan had overlooked and still be confident of his salvation. Why? Because he was justified in Jesus. Because he had trusted in Jesus. Because his sin had been imputed to Jesus on the cross and Jesus' righteousness had been imputed to him by grace through faith. In fact, that's why we celebrate the Lord's Supper, because of that truth. And so that's what we want to do now. We want to come to our time of the Lord's Supper. We'll pick up there next week where we left off. But for those of you who are visiting with us, we encourage you to join with us at the table upon a couple of conditions. First of all, uh, the Lord's Supper always travels with baptism. Baptism is your entrance into the covenant family. And so if you are a baptized believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and you are trusting in him alone for your salvation, that is, you're trusting that your sin was imputed to him at the cross and in his resurrection, his righteousness has been imputed to you so that when God looks at you as as if you had lived Christ's life, Because God looked at the Son as if He had lived your life. Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time, or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we want to start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org slash contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.